Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis interviews leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here's your host, Sean Ellis. In this week's episode of the Breakout Growth Podcast, Ethan Gar and I chat with J.D. Millwood, Vice President of Product at Curve. J.D. previously held growth roles at Uber and Coinbase, so we were really intrigued to hear what led him to the VP product role at another fintech company, Curve. Right. Everyone knows that Uber has one of the best growth teams, but with the more than $50 billion IPO at Coinbase, I was really excited for this interview. I agree. So, so what stood out to you, Ethan? You know, J.D. described connecting growth and product as a force multiplier. That seems to be a recurring theme we keep hearing in these conversations with product leads. Georgia Vidler, who used to lead product at Canva, told us, and even Maria from Buffer, that, that this, there's really value in the tight coupling between these. And we've discussed the impacts of a specialized growth team in our work. But J.D. pointed out that without some level of ownership over the product, it's really hard to drive sustained growth. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's the popularity of product-led growth that really underscores this trend. In fact, uh, I was fascinated, not just in general, his thought of the importance of ownership of growth, but in particular, the area of speed to value. He highlighted how activation serves as a success driver across the entire growth engine. Yeah, and it really seems to be working for them. Even with pausing hiring last year, Curve is on track to just about double its headcount to over 600 employees. Yeah, no, that's a good point. He um, he actually said to us that they are looking for talent. So anyone who's out there in search of opportunities, as we often talk about in these conversations, really fast-growing companies have lots of opportunities. So you should you should check them out if you're looking. They uh, they they are hiring. So Ethan, should we get to this? Uh, no. First, we should mention what's <laughs> happening with Go Practice. <laughs> All right. Um, so, a quick heads up for anyone who is interested: the Go Practice team is going to be taking our comprehensive growth skills assessment that people got really excited about when we launched it with our last cohort. We're actually splitting that out, and we're going to be making it available for free. So it's like a 45-minute growth assessment where it goes into all the key skills for growth. And uh, it's going to be available on Product Hunt. We're going to be launching it on Product Hunt in the very near future. So keep an eye open for that, and uh, we'll appreciate your support when it comes around. Actually, Ethan, before we uh, end this introduction, you also have something cool coming up with Growth Hackers. Yeah, actually, I'll be hosting an Ask Me Anything May 26th at 9 a.m. Pacific time. So if you have questions about mobile growth or the principles for sustainable growth that Sean and I often discuss here, visit the AMA page on growthhackers.com so you can post your questions now. All right, let's get through this. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, JD, welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast. It's great to be here, Sean. Thanks for the time and taking me here. Yeah, we are so excited to learn more about Curve and and all of your experiences together. But uh, I also want to welcome Ethan Gar, my co-host. Welcome, Ethan. Hey, Sean. Hey, JD. Hey. Yeah. So um, let's let's jump right into it. What can you give us a, a quick introduction to what Curve is and and the problem that it solves? Maybe how long around how long it's been around? Yeah. So I mean, first of all, Curve is a brand new category creator in the space. Um, we understand that ultimately finance is super fragmented. There are a lot of fintechs coming into the market every single day. And what people really want is not a um, another bank. They just want a better banking experience. To that end, Curve is basically the world's first over-the-top platform uh, for banking. 
And the goal is to be a new customer experience that sits between the consumer and their financial services. So the end state will be that you have a Netflix or Spotify-like experience to access all things money without having to leave the banks and the services you enjoy today. So we think there's going to be potentially three to four players in this space. It's going to be a large um, TAM. And what we're trying to do is differentiate ourselves in terms of the capabilities we do, starting in the payment space, but then moving further and further into the money management opportunities. And so, so sorry for, like, I, I really didn't go into, I purposely try not to um, research too much about what companies do because otherwise I have the, uh, the curse of knowledge and then maybe the <laughs> audience might not be able to follow as well. So um, is, it, is, it, um, is, is it really like an online bank then? I mean, ultimately in terms of the suite of services that it's, it's heading toward or does it, does it sit on top of banks or kind of merge banks? Yeah, so in terms of the practicality, you know, Curve is fundamentally a, a MasterCard debit card and it has an app. And the app is basically for now your digital wallet. And when you sign up to Curve, you go through onboarding, you add all of your cards, your Visa and debit credit or uh, debit cards. Um, and basically we can support that as well as MasterCard as well. We bring that all into the system. And then whenever you want to go and spend, you just go into the app, select the card you want to pay from and then you use a physical curve card to make that payment. We collect that transaction and we put it through to the end um, funding card you selected. But the trick there is that we're ultimately making the, the spending experience as the most rewarding it can be. And the way we do that is by providing you cash back and rewards on top of the cards you already have linked. And we give you things like great effects and we allow you to have multiple cards. That means that you can actually earn more rewards across a greater volume of cards and basically your entire wallet. And we supercharge the, supercharge the cards you have with additional benefits, such as the ability to move payments seamlessly between each other or have them Apple Pay, Google Pay or Samsung Pay enabled, or the ability to use a credit card to pay off a bill that is not accepted by a credit card, um, such we call that feature fronted. And the idea, because the Curve card is a, is a MasterCard debit card, it doesn't have a block and we route that payment directly to the credit card. It gives you more cash flow and liquidity in the market. So JD, at Curve, and in your previous work uh, at Uber and Coinbase, I saw that your, all your roles previously were, were specific to growth. Now you're VP of product. And I'm curious uh, if you could tell us about that transition, if or how you may have shifted your mindset for the new challenge of leading product. Yeah, I guess starting off, I'm thinking I'm going to be a CMO or VP of marketing in the long term and you know, need to learn a variety of skill sets. And it just so happened that I started off more in a the technical marketing side of things, which soon rebranded into growth marketing and then growth more holistically, especially if you're working with any of the US companies compared to Europe. And you just naturally find yourself attacking big questions along the entire customer funnel, the, you know, the R funnel, and you're working out, okay, what's the biggest impediment to growth? And you know, it's not just acquisition, but it's the onboarding or conversion piece and then activation. And you quickly land on a conclusion that you ultimately need to have some control of products resourcing and a growth tech stack in order to have the most amount of impact because no matter what you put through the funnel if they can't convert because of product issues or um, lack of understanding or friction you're not just going to have the impact you need you're going to have a higher customer acquisition cost meanwhile i'm standing in front of finance and i'm telling them look the cost per acquisition is x <laughs> and the ltv for the customer is y and we're definitely overspending but i noticed that pms weren't having uh, similar conversations to that depth and I realized that, you know, we are incentivized both 
people in the growth space are incentivized towards owning certain metrics and having a holistic view of the funnel and the customer journey. So I naturally wanted to get more and more technical and more into that space to kind of destiny control of my own future. So that was something I had at Uber to some extent, more so at Coinbase. And then at um, Curve, the CEO and I have a very aligned vision where growth is the most in- integral part of the business and you enable it with as many product resources as possible to operate as a SWAT team autonomously up and down the funnel. But as a company grows into scale-up mode, you need to think about how that's more integrated because you realize there's common issues and uh, pain points that you can address being part of a wider integrated unit in the product domain than being a um, SWAT team hanging out on the sides, attacking problems at will. And when, when we were talking before, you had mentioned that, that growth reports into products. So you, you, you have both, but you just really have, have really the, the, the product set of levers is, uh, is really integral to growth, as you were just saying. So um, makes makes sense. Yeah, and I think on this, actually, what's quite interesting is the journey of how that ended up happening. Because um, I joined, I had a very small team of folks who were really the traditional sense from a European perspective of growth marketers. Um, we had CRM, we had some paid acquisition, and we had some SEO and, and ASO uh, channels within the purview. And then ultimately, um, we started to look at, okay, what data can we use to inform our decisions? And we realized, well, the data wasn't where it needed to be. So I'm thinking, how can I get a better control and, and quality of data coming my way? And as a result, I ended up forming the product analytics team and taking that team and user research into the growth domain. And then the second question is, how do we tell compelling stories so that it ladders up with the expectation of what the product is delivering? And as a result, uh, we formed the product marketing team within the growth space. And then we finally asked ourselves, well, what can we do to be able to do everything from marketing and ad tech stack? as well as the capabilities to reduce frictions and add new experiences in a product um, and accelerate people to the value of the growth um, in um, the value in the product. And as a result, I built out a growth product team. So by that point, the team was already structured well enough. Um, Actually stepping into the VP of product role meant I got in addition to that team component, I got uh, product management and product design uh, and user research. So it's a more of a full body team and we're working together much better than we were beforehand because of that unity, but it's a bit of a happy accident the way it came about. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, one company where I was, I was tasked with growth. And then when I, when I really explored all of the growth hypotheses for the business, it was, it was really still a pretty early stage company. I, I, I honed in like this, this is a great viral opportunity. There aren't, there aren't many other opportunities beyond viral that are going to make sense for this product. So this is where I'm really going to focus my efforts. And they, they came back to me and said, um, well, we really consider that product. So you figure out something else. We'll work that lever. And I was just kind of like, <laughs> like I don't, that doesn't make sense. You know, no. go, go all in on the, on the thing that's going to be effective. And, and I think for most companies, product is such a critical driver of growth or play such a critical role that um, it, it does make sense to, uh, to have, have those roles somewhat merged. Um, so one of the things that, yeah, just as, as Ethan was asking you, uh, that the question there, it got, got me thinking. So Coinbase, Uber, you've been, you've been a part of some amazing companies, Coinbase in, in particular, just, I, I, I don't know what their what their market cap is on the IPO. I think I think I looked at it in the last couple of days, like sixty billion dollars or something for a company that's listed in in the last couple of weeks. Um, not not I mean that's that's almost a, a category by itself of of that level that quickly. And Uber, of course, 
would be close to a company that that debuted as a as a really valuable company in the private markets. They were they were worth quite a bit as well. Um, now Curve, like what what was it that attracted you to Curve when you've seen like massive successes and been part of massive successes at those previous companies? Yeah, I think it stems to two two main um, considerations. First one being, how can I learn? What can I learn? And you know, in, in the next opportunity, uh, what problems am I exposed to? And really, can I go in and, and figure that out and have the, the autonomy and the team to do so? And um, that was compelling for me at Coinbase because when I joined, still in the hundred, you know, the, the employee count was a hundred people or so. Um, I flew to San Francisco over a weekend to do all my interviews. It was the most chaotic but fun part of my my kind of uh, job pursuit I've done so far. But more importantly, they had done nothing in, in relation to the growth and paid acquisition space. It was very embryonic. So setting up them from spending their first £1,000 on a Facebook ad to £2 million monthly acquisition spent before I left uh, was one of many activities I felt that was a great new experience. Now, conversely, when I looked at Curve, I was speaking with members of the team. I'd used the product to some extent. And the more they explained the capability of what it could do, near term and long term, it blew my mind. And one of the things I look at when I'm joining a company is I want to know the the moat, but essentially, how on earth are you getting away with this? You know, and at, at Coinbase, it was when I was buying crypto and they were charging me the fees they were. And I was thinking, how on earth are you charging that amount of money? Because this implies you're a multi-billion dollar company. And the level of arrogance must mean that there's something there worth digging into. Right, right. And, you know, when, when I look at... When I look at um, curve as a company and what they what they can deliver it is actually mine it's, it's staggering and it's it's very discreet in terms of the capability so just to kind of bring that to some kind of uh, context you know the company could have just said we're not doing payments we're just going to be a digital wallet experience we're going to amplify some of the capabilities and allow you to bring all these services in longer term but they thought no let's start with the payments capability because we can build a relationship around the most frequent job to be done with customer that also generates a ton of data. That data allows you to have a transaction history. That transaction history allows you to analyze and bring other third-party services and monetize or build capabilities from that transaction history in a rich way. That means that every new product you build is contextually relevant as opposed to a net new upsell. And what's interesting to me is if you take um, Klarna in Europe or a firm in the US, Curve, and this is this is um, our ambitions and it's publicly knowledge, public knowledge, we're launching our product um, dubbed at the moment Curve Credit. And what it ultimately allows you to do is not only buy now and pay later, but it allows you to go back in time to any of the transactions you made over the last 12 months and actually decide to pay, um, get a refund immediately and pay that down into installments. So just for context, um, as I'm testing this out in the beta phase, um, I've got a credit allowance interest-free of £1,000. I literally went to October when I bought an iPad for my parents and I actually put that uh, £1,000 iPad on, uh, got refunded there and then, like literally, like to my to my payment card, and was able to actually have that now for the next. I chose nine months installments, pay down to zero, and that means that you do not need to have merchant integrations like a firm or Klarna. I could go to the Peloton store, my Curve uh, card, make a payment, and be able to have that directly integrated without the merchant knowing. It also means that our unit economics are better from a uh, uh, integration standpoint because there's no fee to the merchant in the same way there is with Klarna or firm, and that's just one capability of being an over-the-top platform layer, as well as having a card component. Without the card component, component, we're following something similar to Klarna or Affirm in the Curve Credit um, instance. And that's one of three verticals that I'm very excited to talk about. The other two is not yet public knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you are excited to talk about the other ones, you can't. Got it. <laughs> 
So, um, yeah. So, JD, what are some of the key challenges you guys have had to overcome, and in, in, especially, I guess, in your role in product? What What have you been What have you been You've been working on. Yeah. So you go from scale. Um, so a startup where you're, you're one big family, everyone's working on the same issues and tackling it, and then you're thinking, okay, cool. We're now to a point of scale up, and we fundamentally have a degree of product market fit, and we are now working out how do we extend that make sure that it's really able to help us reach adjacent audiences and users as they come in. And then we also have uh, product market fit expansion efforts, such as the US and also such as um, Curve Credit, as I, as I explained. So for us, the balance between the two is very important because there's a bias towards building net new features, which are very complicated and highly risky, as well as doing the, let's say, less sexy work, um, which typically falls into the growth space of optimization and modification that really adds a 10x value um, because the product was inefficiently built for a variety of consumers, not your core demographic. So that crossing the chasm has been quite challenging as we go from one stage of growth to the next. The other one is our business being payments related um, was super exposed during the COVID pandemic. Um, we could tell where the, con- the country and where the markets were in terms of lockdown impact just by looking at how people were rebounding and spending on a regular basis. So, you know, I'm a loyal customer if I spend with you every single time I need to spend. But if that's once a month, then it's once a month and it's not a really great place to be. So building products and extended features that would allow for people to not be tied in or be as constrained um, had been a massive part of the 2020 focus. One example of this was our go back in time feature was only two weeks. You could only go back two weeks and be able to take a transaction from one card to the other. Uh, we actually worked on an initiative to make that up to, um, up to three months and we enabled it so it can be from a debit card to a credit card. So that meant that everybody went crazy and bought their toilet or loo roll um, on their debit cards thinking they would have enough money before they got furloughed or laid off. We were able to actually go back in time up to three months and take all of those transactions and put them onto the credit card and immediately free up the cash because it gets refunded to them there and then. So it's taking advantage of those types of opportunities, but they build fundamental capabilities for the longer term. But that challenge of building features where you don't see the direct impact immediately, but you see it three or four months later, has been hard to guide that rapid kind of product development work you want to see. Yeah, so that's... uh... Let's let's kind of dive into the actual growth drivers that themselves, or at least like, uh, I mean, it sounds like it's as as the pandemic kicked in and things like that. Some of the growth drivers are probably going to change a bit. But when when you look at kind of what what has gotten curved to this point, is there one thing that really stands out as as probably the most important growth driver? Yeah, we've got a distributed feature sets, and <laughs> normally it's chaotic to have a single value proposition, um, not to have a single value proposition and do well. But we have these components in the product itself that really speaks to certain segments of our base. So we've got those folks who are really travel focused. We're giving them the best travel um, conversion rates you can find in the market. And for them, it makes sense when it comes to spending abroad because it means that even if every single card they've linked is really bad on FX, they can continue to spend from them those cards and actually enjoy those benefits. So that's like a nice uh, accelerant we see on that side. Another example of this is the ability to um, actually get cashback and optimize towards cashback in real time. In Europe, cashback is not attractive like it is in the US. Um, so for us to give you 1% instant cashback in real time across any of your free selecting um, retailers is a super attractive proposition. Um, but what we, so those are like the main, the main things that gave us a, a good amount of scale to a certain subset of users when we first launched. But in terms of uh, what takes us to the next level, the next wave of growth, it's been about distribution in terms of partnerships. We call them B2B2C kind of partnerships. 
And we launched um, after a long uh, amount of uh, time and work, our partnership with Samsung in the UK. And Samsung, we solved a unique problem for them, which is not many cars in the UK are actually Samsung Pay enabled. And they have to go and set up relationships with all these different banks and they would have to re and those banks would have to reissue or if card issuers would have to reissue new cars that are contactless enabled or supporting Samsung. It's a whole logistical nightmare. I think the same thing will happen in the US as well when we expand there as well. But what we did is by adding your curve card to um, we integrated a direct uh, solution inside the, cur- um, the Samsung device. And every single time you go to Samsung to add your card and it doesn't work, they route you through to our uh, call it um, Samsung branded experience, but powered by curve. And the way we built that partnership is that actually every single customer that comes through, they will know it's a Samsung partnership. Um, they will come through and be able to have their card connected to the Samsung wallet where it wasn't beforehand. But actually, they would have to go and download the Curve app and be able to enjoy all the benefits and capabilities. So we still retain some degree of the customer relationship. That gives us a massive bump, a massive bump in terms of customers. And that now gives us an ability to be able to actually do a massive amount of paid acquisition. Um, in a more, let's say, inefficient way because the blended cost is actually balanced by the fact that we've got organic channels bringing us continual volume. Um, it's almost like tripling the size of organic for yourself in that context. So that gives us a bit of inefficiency, but an opportunity to scale beyond a certain point that would otherwise not be present. So it sounds like product market fit, kind of the original driver, um, just just yeah, you know, a, a suite of services that people really needed. And then, and then this... Uh, the partnerships are, are great for distribution themselves, but they they increase that lifetime value to a point where it makes it so that you can you can fund paid acquisition as well. Is that is that kind of a, a, a good kind of general overview of that? Yeah, absolutely. The core core proposition for the majority of our users is all your cards in one and literally not having to carry your wallet and be able to just take one card and think about that or add it to um, your, your XPay wallet and take it from there. And then, like you said, the distribution plays... And because we serve such a dynamic need for these businesses, this large, Samsung is a massive, obviously, uh, partner to work with at our scale and size. And being able to survive and provide a functionality that is unparalleled in the market, it gives us an advantage that we want to press for a short term and continue to build out relationships like those. But distribution is key because we're solving, if we can solve and be there at the point where those friction or those pain points arise, the activation rate is much higher. People understand the aha moment happens within seconds after signing up. Um, so that's the question now about how do we build better activation? Because we're seeing that activation is the inverse of churn for us. You know, the less we activate, the more longer term churn we see anyway. So it's the same, it's the same thing to solve for. Um, so yeah, it, it gives us focus in many ways, but it, it does present unique opportunities. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing how just interdependent all of these things are. Though that like when when one part start work starts working, it, it helps so much on the other parts. And uh, and when like if activation is working. Then, then retention is going to work. Lifetime value is going to increase. That's going to that's going to feed your ability more to uh, cost effectively acquire people. And so, yeah, it's uh, sounds like you you got the building blocks rolling there. But Ethan, sorry, I cut you off earlier. You were going to ask something. Yeah, I was just following up on the Samsung uh, example. I was just curious if those partnerships uh, also present like a challenge in terms of where how you're positioning where you think of brand in in this. It sounds like. In some cases, you're going to be very brand focused and trying to get consumers to recognize Curve. Um, in other cases, you're relying on the partnership and it powered by Curve, I guess. Um, but where is that? A, is that a challenge for you guys at this point? Um, I think it is a challenge because we're, we're the smallest, and the smallest um, player in, in, in that partnership. So you know, you will always have a difficulty. But one of the things I'll call out is that our brand and what we're trying to do is giving us partnerships 
And it's given us negotiation opportunities when we talk about commercials and, and business structures that are what you'd expect to see of our peers that are, you know, 10, $15 billion companies. Um, so we know that we're competitive and we have something that's unique in the market that can help us. Second proof point on this is that we, the fact that we were able to retain the user and have them come through and download the Curve app as opposed to everything is f- from the Samsung experience um, is another proof point of being able to retain our brand and that customer interaction and touch point with them. They see the brand, they see the capability, they see all the things that we can provide beyond just the enablement of Samsung Pay. And they, they are able to talk to other customer, friends and families and refer them or bring them in, or they're able to continue to use Samsung even more than they would typically because of the benefits. So for us, that was a requirement of the partnership and it gave us an opportunity to make sure we don't get washed away by having the big halo of Samsung. And what's great is it incentivized the right part of that partnership, which is Samsung's going to do everything they can do to solve that particular need for them as a business and push all those customers um, forward, so push their customer and, and communicate this benefit to the masses because it helps their numbers. And we also see the tailwind effect of people signing up and using our transaction. And because we give cash back in real time, we select for them, Samsung will be one of your default cashback retailers. And they're also seeing a, a tailwind effect of basically people going online and actually ordering way more on Samsung websites and stores than they typically would, which makes them happy as a business, makes us happy as our customers are getting value. And we can see that uh, virtual cycle kind of close its loop. That's incredible. Sure. <laughs> so w- w- when you uh, when you actually look at like how, how do you gauge success in the overall business, considering that uh, you you sp- worked with the Uber team for for the the time that you did and they're they're one of the really well-known companies that have executed on a North Star metric. Is that is that a concept that you've brought to curve? And if so, what what is it? Yeah. So company wide, um the, sorry, not even company wide. The, the North Star metric I'm mandating and operating for my team is actually around monthly active users and not, for example, revenue and not, for example, profitability. And the main reason is because of the strategy. You know, we are ultimately building the operating system for money. And if we're building an operating system for money, it has to have certain components, um, marketplace dynamics and the ability to connect providers with consumers. And it's not going to be done in a typical way where you go in and you see a marketplace tab and you can see X, Y, Z. It's the, oh, we see you've got an upcoming um, payment for, let's say, £5,000. You may want to put it on Curve Credit. And Curve Credit may give them options to multiple providers or just Curve Credit itself. However, that aside, um, that order, that really works if you've got scale. And again, because our revenue strategy is around monetizing our base, that again only works at scale. So miles first and get to a certain volume of velocity, and then you have really unique opportunities to drive up uh, revenue generating opportunities or profitability opportunities at scale. So that's kind of been the company, the, the main focus there. And then obviously each product team will derive their own KPIs based on what problems in the customer space they're trying to solve that will have a net impact for the business. And then that will be their, their particular targets for their quarter. Uh-huh. And then their their own KPIs kind of feed up to the, the Mal or Mal might be one of their KPIs, Mal for their particular product. And then you, you'd also mentioned like activation. So how do, how do you kind of think about the levers that move the, the Mal? Yeah, so so we like this is actually very similar for Uber and then also for um, uh, Coinbase too. But the same concepts are there, right? So you're, you're basically saying, okay, we want to grow and have a large customer base. What is preventing customers from growing? Is it onboarding? Okay, what do we fix about onboarding to make that work? And then you would measure that in terms of sign up to activate uh, well, conversion rates, and you would have the team focus on that KPI, knowing if it gets to a certain point, it has a net impact on the number of miles we have. So the team isn't focusing on miles per se. 
Um, in the same way, the growth team, if they're focusing on paid acquisition to drive direct response and have as many signups in the first transactions through the funnel, they're not focused on now at that point in time. They're focused on how many people are coming through at the volume state and refining it in terms of the targeting and the quality of user based on feedback with the folks in onboarding. Coming back to churn, well, what are the top three reasons or drivers of churn? And it's very thematic. You come back to the same conclusions. And if we can drop churn by X amount, um, then what does that do in terms of our model for mouse? And therefore, they have a churn target. But the activation piece is really interesting. How we got to it was also a very interesting component. We Most businesses will say, okay, we have month zero to one. We're going to do our retention lines and see what's happening. And for us, we actually went out a further month and we actually said, anybody within month zero to one is actually in a conversion stage. Anybody who actually hits month two, um, they are actually activated. We call them an activated monthly active user. And as a result, we draw a conversion line from there. And what we saw when we saw retention line, and when we did that, we actually saw a completely different um, line behavior, which actually isolated a key critical business problem around the first stage from certain channels. And just drawing that line from different vectors gave us an opportunity to like clear as day for the entire business. See, we have an issue right here. That's great news because we don't need to be wasting time on winning back customers here. Dress this issue up front and it will solve for the rest of the, the components at this, uh, this stage of our business. So we're trying to make sure the North Star metric is mouse, but each team knows the specific levers and the KPIs to monitor to drive the outcome. Well, with that, I think uh, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the organizational process that you have. Um, you kind of took us through sort of the organic journey that led to your leadership of a product that includes growth and other pieces. And obviously data is a huge component of that. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, you obviously this curve has got got to this place for because that's it made sense for the journey to get to that place. But where, what do you think is the ideal way for startups to organize their teams? Do you like and I guess at different points in, in the in the process? When do you suggest separate product teams or growth teams and marketing teams? When do you think they should be combined? Yeah, so I, I think as you start up, you have a singular vision and you're clear about what you're, do what you're doing. So you operate as a task force, as I mentioned before. You, you, you have a clear alignment of what you're trying to deliver and you know you have limited resources and budget so you constrain what you're delivering against the longer term strategy based on those constraints. Um, and you have cross-functional team members who can delve into multiple things and you get some degree of traction. And then once you hit some degree of product market fit, you start to look at what can you do to extend um, and grow into your TAM. And it's at that point where you start to divvy up your work. Do you want to do scaling work that gives you infrastructure to move faster? Do you want to do um, growth work, which is the tactical kind of hot fixes that make really a lot of impact? And then you have, um, you actually ultimately land on a situation where you have uh, feature work, which is the net new capabilities you're building into your product, and then the product market fit expansion type of opportunities, which really do provide you a lot of unplanned but long term impact. And for me, it's about the profile of the team. I want to maintain a, a nimble team as possible. Really, if I can, one or two um, front-end engineers, uh, two or three back-end engineers, and then the supporting teams, and potentially a pod of engineers in that domain space so they build long-lived capabilities to understand how to tackle certain things. But realistically, there's a trap to want to build new features and to keep over-developing. And if you don't really build in a thoughtful way, you can almost take your product to a bloated state where there's too many things going on and it actually hurts your activation, it actually hurts your, the comprehension of your product for the new customers, the less engaged customers you kind of go into. Um, so for me, having that 
thoughtfulness around what are you trying to build and what is the the smallest team I can build that with? And how do I constrain um, the product work we do over quarters into themes? It's, it's a really important one. And people always rave about customers and this and that and following the customer. The customers, we're trying to solve a, a, a need. Our mission is to simplify and unify the way people interact with money and manage money. That's clear. And our strategy is how we do that. But ultimately, that's what's going to constrain what problems we pick up first and deal with. And, you know, if you just follow every single bit of feedback, you end up taking your product into a completely different dimension. Um, LinkedIn is a great example of this for me. I hate it and I love it at the same time. Uh, the inbox is frustrating me. And I'm pretty sure a lot of the way they built the, the inbox capabilities was based on uh, a certain segment of their users having certain needs and they built it to perfection to support those needs, but it makes me stressed. So again, it's about being principled about what is the long-term health and success of that product strategy and then what teams do you need on the ground to build towards that. Um, and then the second part of this as well is being very confident of hiring amazing people to bring them into the company to take lead. Sometimes as a startup, you hang on to your nimble uh, small team and you put them into significant positions of influence, but they don't have the experience and you end up suffering. For me, the biggest thing I do in my role is actually go out and hire the best team I can find in Europe um, and put significant experienced leaders into significant positions in the company so they can influence and drive better outcomes. And honestly, that's been probably my best gift to Curve, to curve right now. Um, and that's been already in motion from when I was in the VP of growth position. I don't think much changes in the product domain. Yeah. So how many people are in Curve overall? Like uh, we've the got, overall employee base? Yeah, we've got, uh, we're north of 300 um, and okay. we'll be somewhere between 600 by the end of this year. Wow. So grow, growing really fast, but still, I mean, 300 is still kind of a manageable size, probably compared to the the last couple of companies that you were with, or maybe by the end of, I'm not sure, you said Coinbase, it was it was relatively small when you started with them. Yeah, 100 to like 2,000. I, I remember Brian, in one of the all hands, the, the fourth week I joined, said that, oh, you know, we're going to grow very quickly and we're only going to get to about 300. And I inappropriately burst out laughing. Um because I thought he was he was telling a joke, but you know, yeah. we got to a thousand within that year, so he was clearly wow. off the mark. Um, yeah. But the, we had a similar thing with um, with with Curve, in that we had a massively aggressive hiring plan up until the pandemic hit, and we decided to pause mm. things just to preserve cash and to make yeah, sure yeah. that we don't have to live during people. times of uncertainty. Good yeah, to- <laughs> yeah. Uh, but actually, it was really really good because in this time, this uh, right. th- but in that time, we really took the company culture and we combed over it. And we thought about what do we want to build and how do we want to be thoughtful about who we bring into the company and org design and engineering design and product design and the groups. We had a very flat product org and we've stretched that out to have everything from an APM all the way down to a group PM, which we only established a few weeks ago. So having that time to think about what we want to do and the capabilities we need, the zero to one type of people, as well as the people who can optimize and scale really well across multiple geographies. And last thing I'll say on this, um, Ethan, to the point about process and org structure. We don't even operate at the matrix level. We have a helix structure. And for those who are unfamiliar with that, is <laughs> you basically have two reporting lines. Uh, one is for the capability and the other one is for like what you, you, you do with your team. There is no concept of a dotted line in that sense. Um, and just even adjusting the org to that kind of concept and getting them comfortable, very painful, but very rewarding because now we're seeing the benefits of it. So you, so you talked about kind of that zero to one team and, and, and then more of the, the scale skills that come in. How do you do, how do you do that kind of where you, 
Yeah, I, I've, I've just when I've kind of gone from from like you know companies where it's yeah I think there's eight people at Dropbox when I started there and and you know now it's thousands of people and I didn't really take the full journey with Dropbox with some of the other companies I I, I took it through Nasdaq listings and um, it's yeah it's, it's it's hard like obviously you want to you want to reward the people who who got you there even if they may not be able to. Um, be in leadership roles to get you to the next level, but how, how have you kind of navigated the, uh, the feelings <laughs> there yeah. and, and an appreciation that, uh, that people deserve? Oh, no, yeah, yeah. It's a super good question. I mean, honestly, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I've seen it time and time again, and it's super frustrating. And even for myself, at some point, I'll realize that I'm not right for the, for the, the stage of the company and that's fine. It's about the life cycle. Um, but the, the way I've been solving for this is recognizing who needs to be a manager and who needs to be a lead. And a lot of these folks, the zero to one folks, they have a certain skill set you cannot teach and you cannot find elsewhere in the market. Um, and you, you're better off putting them into a position of technical leadership and structure. And they can really design the playbooks for either new product features or market launches or integrating certain complex features into multiple markets. Um, and, you know, in the engineering space, you always see, you see this quite common. You see the, the tech lead versus the engineering management kind of career path. Most teams could actually adopt the same structure and it makes a lot of sense. You can have a design lead who's going to be very much a lone wolf, but really sharp on design quality and bar. And then you've got someone who's a, who's a design manager, who's a false force multiplier. They make the most average person in the team look like a rock star. And I think it's about weeding out which ones um, have the propensity and the desire to do so and then giving them positions to operate. But the last thing I want to have is someone who's not really experienced or really um, able to actually, the potential is the main, main word, right? The, the, the potential can override experience, in my opinion, but doesn't have the potential or the experience to be, for example, a large team leader and then have them you know, ultimately stress out the entire team till they leave. And it's about understanding how do we structure and frame those narratives to make sure they know that they're appreciated, but they're going to be deployed where they're most effective and where they're most passionate about. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I interviewed um, uh, one of the earliest interviews on this podcast was was. Uh, are you familiar with Resi in in the UK? No, I'm not. So it's a it, it's a kind of a residential uh, construction and renovation platform that's, that's UK focused and their CEO, Alex was taking me through, like they, she came to the realization that some people were miserable in certain roles and it was kind of, you, you sort of had these, um, uh, explorer type people, the kind of zero to one people. And then you have the, those people get really kind of bored in a more operational role where they got to just keep, keep things humming. And, um, and then the other people who who do well in the operational roles tend to get uh, tend to, to tend to not like the uncertainty of the exploration roles, and so just kind of as you were saying, sort of finding the right seats for people and realizing where those strengths are. And um, even though I, I I just think one of the things that I've I've struggled with a lot is like uh, you know probably leaving people in roles too long and, and other sorts of things for not wanting to, to hurt feelings. But at the same time, it's, uh, you know, you, you are doing a disservice if, if somebody is, is in the wrong type of role and, and, uh, being able to, 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 to structure in the right way, I think you can really make the, the, the job a lot more rewarding for a lot of people. So it sounds like you're navigating that a lot better than I have in the past. It is tricky though. Yeah, no, it, yeah. it's absolutely tricky. And I'm pretty sure I'll fail like six more times in the process, but Again, that speaks to having you know the great team I have around me to help balance out the trade um, the trade offs and to get a 
a good decision. But yeah, I think there's a lot I've seen in terms of the engineering domain that are really, really poachable in terms of processes and practices around here. Like most teams, if you're not going to be a people manager, you don't have the desire to do so. It seemed like a taboo in engineering. It's like, that's perfectly normal. So, yeah. <laughs> so Sean and I have seen this trend towards growth and product leadership being combined. And it's, you know, I think Curve is a really good example of that happening in, in the real world. Do you think that's going to continue? And uh, do you see it as a, as a good thing for, for uh, the future of companies trying to really execute on growth? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I mean, starting even from marketing, I, I was thinking, you know, what does it take to be an excellent marketer, you know, end states? And for me, I just felt that you really, really need to be accountable and data-driven. And if you look at all the developments that's going on in the space with Apple and others, it's becoming so hard to know exactly if what you're doing is working. Um, and you need to re rely on resources from engineers to build out the stack you need to do measurement and attribution. And you can't borrow it because you'll be at the bottom of the pecking order when it comes to prioritization. So you need to have some capability to manage it. So that was my big, clear, obvious note that I, I realized this at Uber, like you need to have some engineering control or involvement and you need to be able to be trusted with those resources should it come your way. So. For me, that's when my career forked into like growth and I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then honestly, between working with engineers and, and product teams and trying to solve the tough problems of why is onboarding so messy or why do we have activation issues and how do we structure these things with the engineering teams we have on the ground and the difference of approach between some of the other product teams where they were kind of void of the data and the feedback loops that we had already in the product and building things conceptually, which is a wonderful visionary talent and skill set, but sometimes it's not what the business needs. And for me, I was just thinking, is there really a delta between what a growth PM does versus what a regular PM does? I mean, maybe in terms of where it starts off now, but given that the whole space is super new, I mean, you know, who's to say? So I, I do see um, growth people, regardless of if they even are a growth product manager, firstly going more into the growth product manager role and then going into a product related role and just becoming a blended mix. Because ultimately, if you're building a feature and there's no end result of growth, whether it's on revenue, whether it's on um, activation, whether it's on new customers, then you're wasting engineering resource. And let's just break it down this way. An engineering team costs a typical PM maybe 100, 150 grand to earn salaries per month. Now, I spend 100, 150 grand of paid advertising a month. I go into finance in the, at the end of the month and I tell them exactly where I spend the money and what the return is. Most PMs won't have that conversation. So... If, if that's the level of accountability I've got there, I want to build the same rigor with the product teams so that they're, they're not focused on myopic short-term return, but they do know how to validate and quantify the impact they're having on the ground. Um, and that's really important. Um, it almost structures your thinking in a certain way. Uh, last part on this is, so this is where I've been thinking about my career and where, where do I want to end up. The last part on this is around even the concept of MVP. People think, okay, well, let me test, if I'm going to build a car, let me test the wheels and you test like the chassis. And it's not, it's the thinnest slice of the experience. Do people want to move fast? You test that first and you can test that very quickly. And a lot of the time, if it takes a very short term to be able to test out and validate something, you don't need to do some research. And it's in the delta, in the absence of being able to build something quickly and get it to market and get feedback, you need to do heavy research from the customer space and understand the problems. So that balance, I feel like there's a big chasm between toggle in between those modes um, based on like a traditional PM and the growth PM mindset. But I do see them converging over time. And I think it's great to just see talented leaders take on teams and domains and build more interesting things with like 
Klarna. Klarna, I was saying this before, Klarna is, is the reason why it's got so many customers around the world is because buy now, pay later is a channel. It's not a product. Mm-hmm, right. It's all about distribution. Or the product is what everybody's had for a long time. It's a loan. And if they choose to charge interest or not, it's optional. And if they choose to collect the loan payments immediately or later, it's optional. It's just a way to monetize the loan. Building that distribution is a growth mindset to think about. It's not just build it and they come. It's about how do you build it in such a way where people understand that they have a need and you're solving that need at that moment in time. Therefore, the activation is really, really, um, the loop of it is really, really short. And then you figure out, cool, you can go from web to download an app to making a repayment. And then next time, I may not actually require it to be a merchant. I may just actually go onto Peloton and buy a fixed four-year plan for a bike and pay interest from day one. And the customer doesn't think of which product type am I using. They think about how do I want to spread out my cost of repayment and what's the best option for me? And they see it as one product. Uh, but the channel is buy now, pay later, the deferring of the actual you know, payment of the loan. Wow. So when, when you shifted uh, into the um, product leadership role, had the... Had the previous um, VP of product or, or head of product, um, had they also had a, a, a growth background or were they more of a traditional um, head of product? So um, we've never had a VP of product role before at Curve. Um, okay. And the head of product, um, she and I get on really well. She, she She's super talented and she's coming from Deliveroo. Um, and her wealth and depth of thinking is, is almost like a growth PM. She's super okay. analytical, can trade-off thinks about distribution and has great product theory as well as good application and balances that well. So that was one of the reasons why I was so excited to work in this role because that right. partnership we already had as partners before the role changed and then into this dynamic, she has a very good growth mindset. I'm not sure if she's, like she did definitely did a work in a growth team, but mm-hmm. she has a way to to operate in a similar mindset, but while bringing in the traditional side of PM yeah. um, thinking that I may not have Okay, so that's what I was going to ask. Though, is that if it went, when you went in there, did you bring more of a a kind of test, learn, measure mentality to it than than they may have been approaching it before? By far, um, we yeah. were running. So, a lot of the initiatives we built, for example, the Samsung partnership, um, they are like really long projects to build, and you're committed. You sign contracts. You need to deliver it. So it's more waterfall than it is agile, if anything, um, in terms of the product development. And anyway you get to a point where you're committing a lot of your product resources towards building an experience zero to one. But in terms of how do you make the experience experience that you built better, you definitely need to go into growth mindset mode. And that's where the experimentation, um, the framework for experimentation, the methodology, um, and you know you can apply that even on, on marketing channels. When you, people do CRM campaigns, for example, they're talking about A-B testing subject lines. Who cares? It's about, did the person who get this communication actually go and do the, the business transacting activity you wanted them to do so? And you can see that simply by just cohorting the users and having a control and treatment. So building that repetition of experimentation is great. And then it allows for you to do other things like apply across different channels or different product initiatives and then have that data. And one example of this is in the team I joined, um, there was this very talented and capable but junior um, guy. He... he came straight out of college, um, not even university, and he was working at Curve. And we talked about growth and the mindset and reading the blogs and a lot of actually literature, including yours. And ultimately to the point where he was doing experiment analysis, that's all he wanted to do. Anytime the team shipped an experiment, he would do the analysis part. Okay. For a lot of people, that was like the butt work of the team, but he right, was just right. hungry, like churning it out yeah, over and over again. Some people are really curious about it. Yeah. <laughs> and he got this, this, this way of thinking that honestly is so hard to teach. 
I just gave him principles. I did not mentor him or teach him in any way, but he just caught it very well. Long story short, gave him a product team and he's been killing it. Like even now he's killing it. And, and Curve, I would say our bar for PMs will probably hire a senior and they'll be probably waiting at a PM level. But his way of thinking um, with the growth mindset, I mean, honestly, it's just spectacular given that it's his first ever gig and he's talking about things with like four, 400, 500% lift on activation, on revenue, on uptake. So it's, it's really, really powerful to see that the principles, no matter who's doing them, if you do them right, will pay out in the long term. And it's about the commitment to understanding what are the drivers, like you said, about referrals or, you know, what a virality, what is that one thing you can double click on and build value around? Yeah, I think a, a lot of the evolution, and then I'll let you go, Ethan, I'm sure you're probably chomping at the bit to ask question, but I think a lot of the evolution, as we were talking about the kind of shift to moving growth uh, into product and kind of merging those roles. But I, I think it really started with having kind of it, like it's it's been table stakes in marketing for a long time to to you know data and testing and you know optimizing your spend and it's very yeah it's, it, it just makes sense it's you can you yeah, can yeah. see I I spend it here I make this much money I spend it here I make that much money times two, I'm going to spend it here. And, yeah, and so yeah. I think the challenge is that um, it's just so single dimensional. That's just around ac- acquisition where so much of the growth, as we've talked about, is is across that full funnel, that full for every step of that customer journey. There's another opportunity to drive improvement that makes everything else work better. Like we talked about activation, improves retention, but it also improves your ability to acquire like if, you, if you're really good at activating you spend a lot more on acquisition so yeah this, i think the, this go ahead this is actually this is actually spot on is back to you know even your earlier question i mean ultimately the reason why i cared about product is because i realized that if i want to have more ability to spend you know cac which is a derivative of the lifetime value i need to improve the retention otherwise it won't be here to generate enough ltv for me to spend in the first place so it was in my own selfish interest to deliver the outcome and just seeing how to do it was very eye-opening in terms of the product capabilities you had and i realized oh i'd only be chipping away at the top of that iceberg if i don't actually move down the funnel and see what's happening elsewhere my spend will be super inefficient and i'll be the one getting you know, blasted by finance of the team for being inefficient, but really it's actually a whole bunch of activities downstream. Yeah. And then it's not just kind of today's snapshot of that customer journey and driving improvements, but it's also if if we had a couple more things in the product set that that are a- additional ways to monetize, then the LTV goes up even more and then that feeds channels. And so there's just so much interdependencies to sustainable growth, you know, it all starts with product market fit in the first place, but being able to expand on that beachhead, um, it just, that's why I think it just makes so much sense that kind of marketing mentality went into growth, but it was still sort of this sits, sits next to the product organization. And now you're seeing more and more, I think just even the growth product manager role. Um, if you just look up like, uh, the Google trend search on it, it's, it's up hundreds of percent over the last couple of years even. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you know, and then just then then thinking holistically about sustainable growth in the business starts to starts to blend into into yeah product overall. So it's a it's a cool evolution. I, I like it a lot. But um, go ahead, Ethan. You probably uh, at at this point um, I'm putting you to sleep. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, but I, I know we're running a little bit short on time here. So uh, just trying to uh, I'll just kind of combine just a couple of questions here um, for you, JD. Like 
as you think, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of that, you know, the initial uh, stages with acquisition and activation. Um, obviously, product focuses a lot on engagement and uh, and retention. Uh, but I'm curious, like, how do you think about getting new customers to build a habit around Curve? And how, where does referral fit into that as well? It seems like a, a pretty word of mouth driven product as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if someone's going to refer someone, they're going to do it within the first week or two or three early, early user, early, early lifetime. Um, they're excited about the product. They're using it really well. And that's if that's even if you have no network effects, just there's no benefit for, for you or for, for the end user um, as a joint experience. Um, so what we're focused on is really uh, building on that excitement and nudging them towards certain outcomes as early as they can and to make it as easy to do so. The discoverability is one key component, but also the experience itself and then making sure you've got a line of sight of what you could be earning or what you could be seeing or what you could be doing if you were to execute on a referral piece. The second part is going back to what I mentioned about the benefit of being a payment type business is making sure that we can build things. And this is where we're headed to um, is make sure we can build experiences that are contextually relevant for the referrals in the first place. So the example of going to a restaurant, being able to split the bill between friends and family, we don't offer that yet something we could do. And the reason why I say that something we could do is if we're all on Curve, we could all go, I could actually make the payment on my Curve card, but because all three of us are Curve users, we can split that bill in real time. So charges my card and all three of us pay equal amounts there and then. Um, but we could also say, by the way, um, if you pay with Curve with a new person that's not on Curve, we'll give you £10 off your bill. And it's that situational context of, of growth. And this is where I think as a PM, you build a core capability. And then in the same way, you may think, how do I monetize it? You can also think, how do I extend it into a growth capability? And you always go to the monetization piece because it's straightforward and it's ingrained. But the question of value is actually, how do you make this growth hook opportunity? So that's in, in relation to the referral piece. Then the referral mechanism that we're building out in terms of awareness and discovery of the referral program and potentially any payouts, exactly the same capability we need for affiliates and influencers. Um, they may be getting paid out and so on. And, and uh, you know, one of the key strategic insights we've been focused on at Curve is recognizing that with Apple's tracking um, changes um, with the way it's going forward, and most likely that Google and others will follow in a similar fashion in the next couple of years. Uh, realistically, I'm using um, influencers as a hedge because if I have X number of influencers, let's say 20, 30, 100, even 3,000 influencers, and they've got a combined reach of what, 100, 200 million across multiple geos with interests and penetrations, I've got a very targeted group of folks I could go to with product launches or new customer acquisition. And I can run that as a pay, as an ad network, so to speak, if I wanted to, feeding them content and incentives. And they do a better job of explaining what Curve is than any ad creative can. They are sitting there and explaining it, and they do it like a theme. Unboxing on, on day one. The next one is about how they actually understand some of the benefits. The third one is actually them going out there and spending, buying things that they talk about on their channel, regardless of us being involved with their Curve card. Because ultimately, Curve is a window into your life. It helps you live your best life by allowing you to spend and buy experiences. So that sits quite well in that space. And it's been one of our most successful channels. Um, that and referrals has been a core part of our growth outside of like Samsung and other partnerships. Wow. It's, a, it's such an exciting story. I'm, I'm, I'm really... I, I think, uh, wait, so how, how long have you been in the, in the product lead role now? Uh, technically it's been about six weeks, seven weeks, six weeks. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I mean, just as, as you, as you kind of build roots into that role more and, um, like I, I, it'll be such an interesting journey, I think to watch from the outside, but, uh, 
Well, con- and congrats on that. But um, so we do like to end with one one question and uh, give you a heads up in advance. So hopefully you got a chance to think about this. But you know, when you look back, uh, particularly over just the last couple of years, say. Um, what, what do you feel like is, is the most important, maybe new thing you've learned about growth in the last couple of years? Uh, I'll say the obvious thing, first of all, is that it's fight club insofar as you don't talk about it. <laughs> uh, well, like, this is why I love this podcast because you do, but you know, most companies, they, they build this doctrine of build it and they come and, you know, it's a great way to raise capital and, and venture on, but you go in and you really see the, the, the individual uh, turns of the flywheel that's needed. Um, and once you get a momentum going, you never want to stop. If you do, it's actually really hard to restart. Secondly, um, how much of a force multiplier having growth as close to the product domain and aligned can be for the business? Um, I've done it before where I've got it close to the product domain, but there was always a bit of misalignment insofar as who owns what, where's the barriers. But this fluidity between the teams now is putting us in a, a super capable position. And then lastly, how much I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, you go into companies, you think, oh, I'm going to use my Uber toolbox. It's not going to quite work. Okay, I'm going to use my Coinbase toolbox. Not quite working. And you have to rediscover what's going to be the growth engine because, yes, the tools are the same, but the context is what's different. And you have to have the context plus the tools in order for you to be able to see the impact you need. Right. Yeah. In fact, that was one of the things we were talking about before, uh, before we even started is just like beyond just like learning the business itself and what's going to be appropriate for that business. But it's, um, I I think particularly in growth, just the, the variety of skills that you need to be good at it from copywriting to just like, just understanding influence of people to, to data and feedback loops, how to set up experiments in the right way. And I think the more you can holistically understand how those all fit together, plus understand the interdependencies of the business. I think that's another theme of kind of moving toward um, understanding the business on a full level and not just your narrow view of the business of the things you're responsible for. It's a hard, it's a hard role to be good, but um, like clearly, clearly you are, um, you're, you're an impressive guy from everything that I'm, I'm kind of hearing in terms of the, uh, and, and uh, like I said, I, I think, uh, even before we were chatting that like Uber is such a great background for this because the Uber team between guys like Andrew Chen and Ed Baker and yeah, Ed had run international growth at Facebook and Facebook's the other amazing company when it comes to growth. Um, I, I just think, uh, you know, being able to take those skills, bring them into a company like Curve, um, it's going to be really interesting to see what you do there. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right in terms of uh, the whole journey and, yeah, like I said, I'm incredibly fortunate. I've just followed my intellectual curiosity into certain problems and spaces, and it's just lend itself to another opportunity. And the product one is super interesting, um, given where Curve is. You have to explain a lot of the theory that you've built up on intuition. You have to rationalize the theory into something that you can use to teach teams and people. But, you know, like I said, hiring is the most exciting part of the role. Um, we're doing that a lot at Curve, but most importantly, bringing in leaders where in a similar capacity of the podcast we get to learn and talk and discuss with other experts doing that in the product domain um and building out a more substantial uh, growth capability top two highlights for 2021 for me 
Cool. So what, what type of roles are you hiring for? That's probably a really good thing to end on. So anyone who's listening, yeah, are you looking primarily UK based? You're looking worldwide in terms of the talent? And uh, yeah. yeah, we've got, so we're, we're looking both in the UK and also in the US. Um, we're, we've got an office based in New York and we're launching later this year. Um, so we're looking for anybody um, in the PM, uh, whether it's uh, head of, sorry, not head of group, um, senior PM or associate PM. We're hiring product marketers here in the UK as well as in New York. Uh, we are hiring data analysts in both locations, um, data scientists. So honestly, if you're thinking something in relation to product or product execution or teams, we are hiring. And then, of course, we're hiring growth, uh, growth marketers, growth, head of growth um, and other roles, too. So uh, do do reach out um, either on LinkedIn um, uh, or, or realistically, we have our careers page where we have pretty much every single role we're hiring for all live at once. I'm not sure if that's productive or not, but it seems to be working. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> my, my daughter actually just, uh, signed on. She's a, a third year in university and she just, uh, this summer is going to be in a growth product management internship with Noom. And, uh, I was just telling her that's exactly the right skill set to be developing right now because there's a lot of really good opportunities. So how um, proud must you be? How proud? Yeah, yeah, I'm super excited for her, and um, yeah, she's uh, we we geek out about this stuff a lot. So it's pretty pretty cool when your daughter actually cares about the stuff you work on. Right. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, awesome, Ethan. Did, yeah, did you have any other key takeaways you wanted to highlight, Ethan? Yeah, I just love the way you really highlighted how the growth mindset drives great product leadership, and it it was. It's so interesting to see how everything from organizational process to experimentation is driven by data within your organization. Um, and you know, you made a great point when you said, if growth isn't in focus, why are you putting engineering resources into it? It's like one of those questions that people should be constantly asking themselves. So I thought there are a ton of, a ton of great takeaways. I have more notes here than I can, I'll ever be able to get through, but uh, really great to, to, to chat with you, JD, and learn so much about Curve and your successes. Speaking with you both has been amazing. And thank you for having me. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you guys soon in the future. Absolutely. And for everyone tuning in, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.